Welcome to the RM Roundtable, the podcast where experienced accountants and consultants provide their unique insights into current business events. In our first episode, SVB, a bank failure like no other, we delve into the causes and consequences of one of the most significant banking failures in recent history. Our guests are Michael Levesque, Executive Director of Growth and Development at Rotor for Moss, and Rick Swafford, Principal at Rotor for Moss. With their extensive knowledge and expertise, they provide a compelling analysis of the factors that led to this failure and offer valuable insights into the lessons that can be learned from this experience. Well, considering, considering uh, all that's been in the news uh, the last week or so about uh, Silicon Valley Bank, um, Rick, I think it's probably a good idea to sort of describe what happened and perhaps some of the uh, um, unusual nature of this bank and uh, you know what some of the ramifications are from from your perspective as an auditor and I'll, I'll, I'll share my perspective as well but if, if you don't mind uh, sort of teeing this up we'll get going mm-hmm. well one thing uh, that I think is important is to understand how the balance sheet for this financial institution was a ticking time bomb I mean it was uh, structured uh, to be extremely vulnerable to interest rate and uh, liquidity risk. And I say that because if you look at the balance sheet and you just take their assets and, and you drill down 50, I believe it was, yeah, I looked at their 10K, 57% of their assets were tied up in government securities. Uh, and that would have been like uh, agency securities, uh, mortgage backed, uh, municipal bonds, just uh, otherwise well-rated securities, but that's 57% of their balance sheet. Rick, just just to add to that, that's more than double the average of all U.S. banks. So just really a high concentration. Yeah. And amazingly, 80% of those investment securities had maturities 10 years or more. So they're really long-term. And so when interest rates drastically rise, the market value is going to drop because when these were purchased, not only they're long term, they were low yields. So that creates a difficult liquidity uh, challenge uh, in selling those securities to to create liquidity. And the the bank was only about 35% loaned out. So 57% in investment securities, long-term maturities. And then 35% only in loans, which uh, when we drill down and talk about their customer base later, I can get more into what's important about that. But these were not your traditional term loans, mostly. And so they're not uh, on a schedule payback monthly, creating a lot of cash flow. Uh, so that that much of the and then the, the rest of the balance sheet, you know, they had some cash, uh, other in other assets included things like derivatives, uh, carried interest in venture venture capital funds, just not a highly liquid instrument scenario. So, so that's your balance sheet set up. And then you move over to the liability side and uh, you had the same situation where their deposits were primarily either all due on demand or less than one year. So almost all their deposits are, are short-term. They weren't long-term CDs. So they were 
uh, set triggered uh, to, to mature or to be withdrawn quickly. And 90% of their deposits uh, were uninsured. So, Mike, I don't know. That, that yeah. extremely yeah, high. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. There's a, there's a bunch of things to talk about here. So 90% of their deposits are uninsured. So the, the, the concentration of their type of client or depositor for Silicon Valley Bank, they've really been serving the tech community. Uh, they call it the innovation economy, mm-hmm. uh, high concentration of tech companies. So what that means is a lot of these tech companies seek financing through either a public offering or a private offering, and they get a lot of cash. So they put all this cash mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley Bank, and then they, they, they're not making money initially, so they burn through a lot of this cash over time. It may take them years before they achieve profitability. So they're burning through this cash, but initially they're putting a lot of cash into the bank. So mm-hmm. it's interesting because when you look at nationally or domestically, Signature Bank had 90% uh, uninsured deposits, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, 88%. Um, Citigroup, surprisingly, is 85%. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I'll share some of our, the, the banks that we see locally. So Truist, for example, 46% of their uh, deposits are uninsured. Regents Bank is 37. Bank of America has a presence in East Tennessee. They're 33. And Fifth Third Bank is 42. So it's, it's essentially half of these troubled banks. Um, and, I, and I think that's important because what happens is when the, the, the uh, liquidity issue that Rick described, so they, 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 have a cert- they keep a certain amount of cash and then they invest a certain amount of, of that cash in government instruments. And on the surface, that seems very safe, right? So government instrument, that's pretty much as safe as you can get, except if you need it immediately. If you need the cash immediately, then you've got a problem because in this interest rate environment, those investments that they made are now underwater um, if they have to cash them now. If they held them to maturity, they would be what they what the uh, what par value would be, but uh, they didn't have that benefit. So uh, therein lies the problem. I mean, that's but it's a very unusual bank situation uh, that that caused these these uh, uh, things to occur. Yeah, the uh, the amount of cash that a bank must keep on hand uh, is actually a pretty small percentage. The Federal Reserve minimum requirement. Uh, but that's for day-to-day operations. It's not near enough, you know, if, if people get spooked and, and you get a bank, you know, run on the bank. Uh, very interesting balance sheet, like I said. And the metrics there, and when you think through it, just really left them very vulnerable to, like I say, interest rate and liquidity risk because the maturities of their uh, uh deposits are all short term, the maturities of their investment securities instruments are all long term, and their loan portfolio uh, was not amortizing term type loans. They were more like what I call evergreen loans, where it's lines of credit and uh, you pay interest only, 
get a you get a review, you might have interest rate increase, which would seem fine, uh, except you're not getting the normal cash flow you typically see in, in a bank's loan portfolio. Now, as you as we discussed, their client base uh, was high tech companies, life sciences, uh, venture capitalists. Uh, and those type of funds, which uh, are going to own operating companies, startup companies, the operating companies are probably young in their life. And so they're going through a great deal of cash, have a lot of cash needs. And uh, the large ones like Oracle or uh, Roku, uh, you know, such large companies, $250,000 is not enough to cover their needs day to day. And, you know, it just would be a, a nightmare for these companies to try to deal with the treasury aspects of keeping all their cash insured and, and having hundreds of bank accounts. In fact, I'll add so to that, that, Rick, if you don't mind. Um, sure. So Roku, for example, had cash and cash equivalents in SVB of $487 million. Right. So you, so you think, okay, so the insured amount, FDIC insured amount for deposit accounts is $250,000. That essentially means yeah. that Roku, they would have to have nearly 2,000 bank accounts spread around the country just to be all insured. And that's, that's not oh, right. Yeah. Right. So that, that's just not the way it works. But they had $487 million in cash and cash equivalents yeah. in SBB. Now, you know, you'll hear on the news and you'll hear, Silicon Valley Bank is a regional bank. It's not, you know, not one of the big banks. It at the time this occurred, it's the 16th largest bank in the country. It's not a small bank. Over 200 billion dollars mm-hmm. in total assets is a pretty large bank. Um, you know, you'll also hear that you know the the rollback of Dodd Frank uh, regulations um, that that Trump instituted were a primary cause of this. Well, this what uh, what that essentially said is that banks over $50 million, this is before the Trump rollback, were required to do stress testing on their on their portfolio. Um, Trump rollback increased that size limit from banks of 50 billion to banks of 250 billion. So Silicon Valley Bank was no longer subject to this stress testing. Uh, and they say, well, that's the reason why this occurred is because, you know, they, they didn't stress test. Um, but I don't think that's right. I think this is really an oversight issue more than a regulatory issue. And I think, you know, Rick, who should have known about this risk uh, or these growing risk? And I'll also comment there, there's people outside of that small network of people that should have known that knew about it. So it's, it's really public information if you know what you're looking for. Uh, Rick, mm-hmm. so who, who should have known about this risk? Well, certainly management. You mean a bank that size, they're going to have a, a chief risk officer and, and personnel with him or her. Uh, so there would be more, more than one person. And, and they, uh, in their filing, said that uh, they they did stress testing, but they but they also disclosed that they weren't subject to the more uh, robust testing requirements uh, of the two hundred fifty billion or more uh, banks, and uh, that one of their uh, disclosures for 
uh, in their 10K risk, uh, where they have to disclose risk factors, was the fact they were approaching the 250 billion, and that would add additional uh, requirements for them uh, in, in this interest rate sensitive and uh, stress, uh, tr- yeah, stress testing uh, requirement. So they, they in their filings said they they did something. I don't know how. In my mind, I'm trying to imagine how they would have missed this upside down scenario where as rates rose, their assets are falling greatly in, in value and they don't have a lot of liquidity if that concerns people. So, so let's uh, just say this, Rick. So uh, let's just say that senior management of $250 billion bank missed it completely. Um, there's mm-hmm. a few other entities that also scrutinize um, the reporting for Silicon Valley Bank, right? So, so who else would be aware well, of that? Well, yeah, it was a state chartered bank. So uh, typically you're going to have state examiners and there's FDIC insured. So you had two different sets of examiners, presumably both state and federal. They're also a member of the Federal Reserve Bank, maybe uh, even the Office of Current, you know, of the Controller. But certainly the, uh, the external auditor would not have been required to, there's not a, a burden on them for stress testing per se. Uh, but, you know, they, the, the external auditor in this case was KPMG their report was dated February 24th, was it, I think, uh, a couple of weeks before the bank fell. Uh, so it was a short period of time that, that their audit report was released. And, and I guess if we want to, do we want to go ahead and get to that point of our discussion and uh, discuss the auditor's role? Um, this mic or- let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the days uh, right up to when this occurred, and then we'll go back to to that, if you don't mind. So, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like us to discuss, you know, kind of those some of those events just before the closing, and and uh, and then there's, you know, the, you and I talked. There's an accounting. I'm not going to call it a gimmick, but an accounting principle matter that uh, uh, also comes into play right. to this. So, go ahead. All right. Well, Mike. since uh, since this, it looks as though this tinderbox. Um, was lit on March 8th. Um, at that time, the CEO of SVB sent a letter to stakeholders um, really identifying some issues, but he did it in such a way, I mean, I've read it three or four times and the language he used, you know, it's, it's a sort of a study in corporate communications. I mean, it's all very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, yeah. I, I, I'll, some of the things that I took from his letter, he said, you know, today we took strategic, strategic actions to strengthen our, our position, uh, to take advantage of potentially or potential higher short-term rates, lock in funding costs, protect net interest income, enhance profitability. Uh, we intend to further bolster our position. We're well positioned to serve our clients. We are confident that these are the right decisions. Uh, these are. This is all language from his letter to stakeholders. 
Uh, I want to read you something verbatim, um, two things. One of them is, says, even before today, we had ample liquidity and flexibility to manage our liquidity position and one of the lowest loan to deposit ratios of any bank of our size. So that's important. And we'll get back to that in a second. And he also said, our strength and staying power gives us the freedom and flexibility to lean in with our clients at times like these to help them work through their challenges. So all of this that he says in his letter to stakeholders is so very positive. It sounds like they're this is this management team is really doing the right things. But he did alarm some folks because one little paragraph in this, he says, while we re realize a one-time pre-tax earnings loss of approximately $1.8 billion in connection with the sale of these uh, securities, um, he immediately flipped it. And it said uh, it's immediately accretive to net income and net interest margin resulting in a short payback period. Um, as a result of these actions, we expect approximately $450 million post-tax improvement to our annualized net interest income. So even in this part where he says they had to sell all this at a loss, $1.8 billion loss, um, you know, he's spinning it as, oh, this is, this is good. It, it's just the right thing to do. Um, but what happened is, is that caused a run on the bank um, on mm -hmm. Thursday. Um, and it was a serious run on the bank. It was $40 billion in 24 hours, 40 billion, billion. <laughs> Four, yeah. just so people understand, we're not talking thousands or even millions. We're talking 40 in billion. 24 hours. Uh, in this is very much like the electronic version of it's a wonderful life. Uh, you know, yeah. people are clamoring for their money. Um, so that's when, you know, regulators stepped in and received the bank and, and this all happened. But, um, it was, uh, it's fascinating, but it's, it's a very unusual bank. Um, and, and there were, there were, there were signs. There were signs that were, that were readily apparent um, externally beyond just the management auditors or FDIC regulators. In fact, there's a blogger yeah. um, mm -hmm. who uh, was talked about this in terms of being a ticking time bomb back in January. He was posting on Twitter about SVB Bank, um, and and, I, and he was he was absolutely right. Um, some of the thing, one of the things he said is uh, on Twitter in January, he described the bank's hold to maturity accounting trap, referring to a bookkeeping maneuver that allows banks to avoid mark to market losses on bonds it doesn't plan to sell. So I think it's probably a good idea, Rick, if you to explain what he means by that and what it, what the ramifications were for SVB Bank or SB Bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mike, uh, like I say, just shortly before the failure, there are several disturbing things that occurred, if you would. Uh, but if you go back in time, uh, and it's in the disclosures of the uh, most recently filed 10K, uh, and it would have been in the prior year too, uh, a discussion that uh, under generally accepted accounting principles that a, uh, a holder of securities uh, can take advantage of what SVB did. And that is if you have investment securities, marketable securities, uh, you have three different buckets that 
you can classify them in on your balance sheet. One would be trading securities. Now that's more like brokers that buy and sell every day. So you don't, banks, they don't buy and sell in stock. So they typically don't have any trading security portfolio. The other two options are what's known as available for sale securities held to maturity securities, AFS, available for sale. Uh, throughout the industry, I mean, I think you see most banks classify nearly all or nearly all of their securities as available for sale. That way they don't have to argue about whether they have the ability to hold to maturity. And when they do that, the accounting requires them to mark the market. In other words, what are your securities worth the day of, date of your balance sheet in the market? So you have to price them at the market price and gain or loss then is an adjustment through the equity section. It's not in the, not in the P&L, not in the income statement. Uh, so the other option being held to maturity, under held to maturity, you get to keep them on your balance sheet at amortized costs. In other words, you know, government bonds or and securities sell at a uh, at par or at a discount or a premium, just depending on movement of interest rates. And so that amortized cost is, is on your balance sheet for your HTM held to maturity securities. You have to disclose the market value at each reporting day or annual day, but you don't have to adjust your balance sheet and your equity for that. Well, as it turns out, and this is as early as uh, 2001, in 2001, the end of 2001, that balance sheet, SVB reclassified substantially all of their, I mean, the 80% or more, the, the, the major portion of their investment securities, they reclassified to held to maturity. And I'm going to, and most of those are going to be long, ones that they would have known would be dropping in price as interest rates went up, I guess, dropping in value. And, uh, and so now those losses aren't being shown in those uh, on the balance sheet. The balance is shown for the held to maturity uh, securities. In fact, at the end of 2022 in their balance sheet, you go to the disclosures, you find out that they were of, of 90 something, yeah, 96 million, I think it was, in held to maturity securities were, were underwater by 15.6 billion, I think. So 96 billion, but 15.6 billion of it's overstated. Rick, if I could go back just one minute, because I think, uh, when did they reclassify uh, those investments. You, you said two, you meant 2021, right? Well, at the 1231, 2021. Right. So I think you said 2001, okay, so, which is why I want to yeah. make sure we correct that. So it was, it was right at the precipice of knowing uh, the Fed was, was really on the verge of or having to deal with inflation and potential for rising interest mm -hmm. rates. Yeah. So yeah, that tells me management saw that, you know, they, they have, emerging right. problems right. and then that that's going to be a problem and so you know you get on down the path uh and they start having to sell these 
to cover deposits and they're recognizing huge losses. But but that, you know, before the closure, that was that was to me the earliest signal that people really would. I mean, this bank, like you say, been around for 40 years and it was well capitalized. I mean, in the in, in, I think in the CEO's letter, he stressed, and if you look at their filings, well capitalized under industry standards and you go to their 10K, I think they... I'm thinking they might have been 12, maybe 15 or 16 percent equity, uh, which puts them in what's known under regular regulations as well capitalized. That means your assets list your liabilities. Right. For the, so that doesn't mean that that doesn't take into account uh, that uh, those assets aren't you know cash flow. That has nothing to do with cash flow. That's just Equity. Right. From from a, a layperson's perspective, and if you're a business and you're trying to figure out if uh, you want to do business with a bank or not, I mean, you look at SVB and, you know, 16th largest bank in, in the country, uh, over $200 billion in assets, been around for 40 years. You know, sounds pretty good. Um, it's interesting in the, uh, the CEO letter, I had mentioned that, that he said, a letter to stakeholders, one of the lowest loan to deposit ratios of any bank of our size. Well, that's exactly the problem. <laughs> so, that's what so, yeah, I mean, so humorous about have, it. It's actually this have, part of their demise. They, they, they deposits have, and very low loans. Yeah. Um, that's, that is uh, what separates them and why they're so unique and why it is a problem. Um, but uh, I thought that was interesting because yeah. but here's another interesting thing is that both the CEO and the CFO um, exercise stock options at the end of February. Right. So this this letter to stakeholders was, was March 8th. So the end of February, they're exercising stockholders. Now, in the case of the CEO, it was, you know, the net gain for him was about two and a half billion dollars or two and a half million dollars. I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So. Obviously, when people see that, you know, so attorneys and clax action lawsuits, and, you know, here we have the CEO exercising stock options a week before um, uh, this pronouncement, this letter that causes a run on the bank. So that, that you know, that certainly is uh, at least the starting point for class action lawsuits. But there may have been a 10 5 one B a five one B or B five one plan, which is is for insiders, and it basically says that you know that it's really automating the sale of or exercise of options. So you know you just you just establish this plan, and it you know I want X number of options exercised at this date and this price, and th- there's no timing element. So you you try to insulate just, yeah, you, just, know, you, you sort of insulate yourself from these type of uh, liabilities. I'm not sure that it totally does insulate him, but it, it there may be an existence of one of those plans in this case. And uh, did you look, did he actually uh, sell shares he already had or did he just exercise options? Well, he sold shares. So he, he, had, he owned yeah. shares, 12,451 shares at $105 a share, and he sold them at you know, 280 some odd dollars a share. So yeah. we made $2.4, $2.5 million uh, on that exercise. So that's that's sort of the basis for the, uh, you'll see class action law, class action lawsuits that, that uh, 
have started because of mm -hmm. this. But you know, here's the here's the problem too: is when regulators see the enormity of this issue, they say, "Well, you know, that rolling back the uh, the oversight of the, the stress test was was a problem, and therefore we need to make sure." Community banks are regulated because they're unregulated now. Well, I mean, first of all, we need community banks. And oftentimes in many industries, overregulation tends to lead to consolidation. Um, you know, it's happened. It happened with Sarbanes-Oxley. It happens with Frank Dodd is, you know, the more regulation, th these bigger banks are are better equipped to deal with the regulations. The smaller banks, it's these are these are compliance costs that are very burdensome to small banks. And they find it oftentimes that more regulation leads to less and less banks or. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Dodd-Frank was very extensive legislation with many moving parts and very expensive to comply with. And uh, so there needed to be relief for the smaller community banks. Uh, but you got to question the judgment of changing this stress testing to the extent that hardly anybody now has to do it under the new rules. And uh, and there's a whole lot of people's money in deposits then that are put more at risk when a bank of this size, anyway, was not subject to those. But let's go back to, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, what, what do you do in selecting a bank? It, with this one, you would have really had to be pretty financially astute probably have banking background mm. to dig up the 10K and, and peel out uh, just what this meant with the structure of the balance sheet and and the language in the 10K, nowhere does it really put you on notice, hey, there, this could be a real problem that's not in there. And yet at the time that the 10K was filed, they may or may not have known. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, Moody's had informed management that they were facing a downgrade. And that was never made public. Uh, so you would not known about that. The, uh, the other thing, if you're, you know, a customer and, and considering a bank, you don't have access privy to the regulatory reports because they are uh, confidential. Maybe that's how they should be, but there's information that would have been in those reports possibly that could have really helped you know what where the bank stood. And uh, that, that makes it very difficult. I don't know as <coughs> the ordinary man on the street, businessman would, would have had any idea that this bank was close to fall or to fail and maybe not even the regulators. And we'll, we'll touch on that that pretty soon. Um, did we cover enough, you know, when you talked about their customer base and how that played into this and how the CEO talked about, hey, this is great, you know, we're not loaned out that much. Well, you, you know, bank needs loans. Uh, they got to cover their cost, cost of funds and cost of operations. And in this case, it was a large balance sheet. And before interest rates went the wrong way on them, uh, that large securities portfolio was earning at a rate that gave them an interest margin and they actually showed profits and then they also had their transactional deals because they're in the uh, they have other divisions that do advisory and, and 
investment banking business. It's not the largest part of by any means. The largest part of this uh, holding company, SVB, was the bank. However, the uh, the nature of these uh, private equity, and I think in their filing they said they primarily catered to uh, high-tech private equity and venture capital communities. And when you read through their filings and they discuss their loans to kind of give you a little bit of color on how they work, uh, for the venture capital business, which they were heavy into, they were, even in their filing, the, the way they discussed it, it seemed like they rely on capital calls by the fund managers whenever, you know, they might need to get repaid. Well, you know, you're an investor. You hate to hear a capital call. That's not something that's a term you like to hear. And that does not sound like safe and sound business practices for a bank uh, to rely on a third party to make capital calls to individuals around the world to drum up money to repay you. So that that was problematic. To brag about that loan portfolio uh, I, it would not have been me. I would have been embarrassed to try to brag about that loan portfolio. The loan portfolio, the uh, investment securities portfolio, and other assets in a rising interest rate market is pretty much trash, I think, for the classical banker. And you won't find anybody else headed that way, I don't think. There's one, there's uh, one sort of so cautionary that, tale, I would say, though, is, you know, so what happened uh, is the government, the Fed stepped in and they said, we're going to cover all these deposits, even though they were uninsured, uh, mm -hmm. they're going to cover them. Um, yesterday, which was uh, March 16th, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen emphasized that not all deposits are guaranteed because, you know, they're certainly right. saying right now, just because it's happened here, that doesn't make, mean that future bank failures, if there are any, are going to, we're going to have the same position. So I, I say I would have a cautionary tale that if if uh, if you're dealing with accounts or depository accounts of some sort where you have too much too much money in uh, certain accounts, I would not assume that the Fed will react exactly the same way uh, again. I don't know if they will or not, but I would certainly wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't bet on it. No, I wouldn't either. And I, maybe now's a good time to discuss uh, my old age experience with with banking crises in the past and dealing with what you normally expect from the regulator, you know, regulators with troubled banks. First of all, it's rare in the history of, of bank closures, if you will, that it's, uh, that it's a surprise, that it's just like recent news. And, and the run on the banks like happened at SVB, those are not very common. What normally happens is banks are slowly dying, if you will. It's more of a gradual process. The regulators are aware of it. They have been. Uh, they're maybe trying to give the bank a chance to work out of it. It's not a rush that anything has to immediately happen. And so it, it's known. In fact, uh, something peculiar about this one compared to all those in the past that I'm aware of is uh, normally, it, Friday afternoon is the day to close a bank, and then you wait until after the markets are closing or at the end of the day 
And uh, you have your team already lined up because you've got to come in, take control of the bank and open up Monday morning for the depositors that are insured. Uh, in this case, I don't think they hardly got out of their, their midday coffee break and here comes the feds and closing it. Now, why did that happen? <coughs> you already touched on it. Was it $40 billion or $42 billion? It was over $40 billion in 24 hours. Yeah, and, and I don't know if that was attempted withdrawals or actual withdrawals, you know, with the, the rapid movement of funds by wire, a lot of that. But the first time you know, there was a wire failure and very could have, well, could have been. Uh, the customer base, high tech venture capitalists, I mean, they all know each other. That, that's a pretty tight committed community. And so once someone got spooked or someone they're telling their friends and then there's a the social media aspect. That's, I think that's that's so, a huge difference. I think that has really influenced them yeah. because this week, not only did this all occur in 24 hours, so, you know, this run on the bank. Yeah. Um, and not only is it unusual for the FDIC to, to step in, you know, midweek like they did, like you described, but I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday morning at nine o'clock in the morning the president addressed the nation on this issue. Nine o'clock in the morning. When does that ever happen? I mean, yeah. it doesn't really happen. <laughs> really on the bay, I know. So, yeah. I mean, this is this was uh -huh. really, really things things are very different. Uh, they move yeah. at a different pace. People move money around electronically much faster. It's closed community, rapid. Uh, people, I mean, run on the bank. Um, so. Yeah, and I, I tried to put my shoes in, the, excuse myself in the regulators' shoes, and they're looking through this, and maybe the Fed, and just you know all, all the powers that be. And so here you have the scenario. And in, in, in normal days, you come in, and those uninsured depositors, first of all, he's not ninety percent of the balance you know, of the deposits. Uh, moreover, you know they don't make them whole. Uh, and if you're over the insured, people might need to know that. In, Typical closure, it's like under the bankruptcy rules and uh, for withdrawals from the bank that are not in your ordinary customary, you know, mode of business can be considered what's known as preferential payments. And that typically happens in a bank closing for those that might have rushed in and, and withdrew their money over the insured limit only because they were spooked. And the FDIC has, has the power to <clears throat> require them to put that money back into the to the estate. And then you have a balance sheet. Usually when a bank fails, it's because of capital adequacy. It's rare that it's liquidity, like this case. And so the majority of the assets are going to be loans, usually troubled loans. And it takes a while to work out of those. And, and so the, the FDIC is not in the business to run banks, so they liquidate banks when they close them. That means they'll try to sell the loans off in the market. Uh, Non-renew loans like lines of credit. Uh, it, it, it's That's your customer. But when they looked at this one, when they looked at this bank, first of all, the loans, they can tell, well, nobody's going to buy these. They're not advertising. <laughs> They're not paying back. We don't want to worry about... Okay, fund manager X has got his investors and going to start calling them up. Hey, we got a capital call. We need to make a loan payment. But when you start studying, you know, what, what's in there, so the regulators say, boy, this is going to be a tough nut. And then the preponderance of the assets are in underwater government securities. 
Now, the government kind of survives on selling these bonds and securities. We're talking $100 billion of securities this bank had. You dump all of those at a fire sale, I don't know what ripple effects that have on the bond market. And so uh, you know, they decided to make depositors whole and try to keep this thing together and maybe try to work it out over time, try to find better solution. There's no guarantee that these, I guess they, I'm not so sure they can't go back on their word and, and maybe some of these people won't be made whole, but I guess they've already put it out there. Um, the other side to this is you got a whole industry sector that's important. This is our, a lot of our brain power, the high tech, the uh, emerging companies, that, that some of the things that make America great, you know, we, we don't have, we don't make jeans here in the, in our country anymore like we used to. We don't manufacture everything. So this is an industry segment that uh, if, if they took a real hard line approach as, as they did in the past on most bank failures, can just destroy, and it's still going to suffer, but it could destroy an industry segment almost entirely. So they had a lot of things to consider uh, once they closed this thing as to what are we going to do? So I think there's an interesting, another interesting point, though. So the Fed um, has been raising interest rates or had been raising interest rates for essentially a year since March of last year. And it's been steady that really to combat inflation, steady increasing interest rates. But the Fed is also responsible for the, the banking industry. So, yeah, you know, they're they're focused on fighting inflation, but the inverse mm -hmm. of that is they're having an adverse effect on the banking industry that are, yeah, so, they, they, so the question uh -huh. is, are there more banks, you know, likely to fail very much like SVB? Now, SVB was, I think we've described, it was very unusual in terms of the way it was made up. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, the interest rate environment is is difficult on banks uh, in a rising interest rate environment. Um, they've, they've got some challenges. Uh, that's not to say that they'll mm -hmm. fail. I mean, most banks are in SVB's right. kind of situation. Um, but what I heard yeah. a report today that next week, uh, the Fed would be their normal time to potentially raise interest rates again. There's been debate whether it's going to be 50 basis points or 25 basis points or pause. Uh, yeah. Well, prior to this, the thought was it may be 50 basis points next week. It may be one more time and then pause or 25, or 25 basis points and then pause. But the, the interesting thing is people are reporting that this bank failure and the tightening, the, cons the consequence, the tightening of lending, you know, the rest of the industry is going to tighten up their standards, have the effect of mm -hmm. at least a 50 ba basis point impact on um, the economy. So essentially what they're saying is the Fed doesn't need to do anything because it's already happened. Uh, it happened last week uh, yeah. in terms of its impact yeah. to the economy. So mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah, you and I talk, and, and I've had a number of people I've talked with that, and it may be where we are. You know, we're not necessarily, the economy's really strong in in our markets that we, we reside in, you know, Knoxville, Nashville, uh, Chattanooga's even doing well, and so is, you know, the Tri-Cities. 
And we talk with bankers that are you know, still doing business. And so maybe we don't see it. And maybe we're a little bit, a number, we don't really see them. <laughs> we don't believe, you or I, that uh, interest rates need to be kicked up for a while yet. I mean, let it settle out. I think that I, I, it concerns me what, what the Fed's doing. The other concern is some of the, the media coverage by, you know, large media players that <clears throat> I guess, uh, you know, hysteria maybe gets more more coverage. Uh, but this bank was very, very unique. And, and the ones that, that we had three failed, you know, right with about the same time and another one in trouble in the Republic that's, that's getting its bell out, I think. But I, I don't want to go there yet because I haven't really you and I haven't focused on that, but the uh, signature bank and what was it? Sterling finance. I mean, one of those might've actually been, I think was a borrower from Silicon Valley, but uh, they were their space, their customer base and their own in, investment profile and was in, in the crypto space, which is totally different than, than, uh, Silicon Valley, and all three of those banks are totally different from every bank that you and I work with or have worked with and, and got to know. So it's 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 very different uh, what's happened, and that doesn't mean that these banks aren't pretty strong, because actually I think they are quite strong. Now, I think across the country with these interest rate increases, uh, it has caught uh, the banks across the country to uh, for their investment portfolio, they're holding investments that uh, are have losses in them, uh, but not to the extent that Silicon Valley, because people don't go, banks don't do 10 year plus maturities on their investment securities. They ladder them. They have much shorter terms. This this bank had just the, the something I'd never seen before. Uh, is to have such long-term maturities in their security portfolio and all short-term maturities on their deposits. Yeah, the balance sheets for the industry um, are still relatively strong. Certainly, when you contrast yes. that with 2008 and the, the financial crisis, um, it's, they're not anywhere near that. It uh, doesn't look like that at all. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, why people are alarmed. Is this an industry thing? I'm not sure it's an industry thing. It's this is some select banks that are on the fringes of the industry, really. So. Mm -hmm. Should we touch? Have we touched uh, enough on the auditor and and maybe uh, the concerns there that uh, maybe people would be interested in? Yes. Uh, KPMG uh, issued their report dated February 24th, 2023. The bank failed how many days later? March 8th. <coughs> it's not very long. Uh, so there are a couple of things come into play that uh, would have been a responsibility of the auditor. Their role, of course, is to express an opinion as to whether the financial statements uh, that uh, were in the Form 10-K in which they rendered opinion whether they were accounted for in compliance with the accounting standards here in the U.S. Uh, so that that's kind of straightforward, seemed rather simple. Um, 
I don't want to complicate it. They also report on internal control, but I'm not so sure that's the problem to focus on. But if you look at the filing and the financial statements, two things come to, to mind to me as an auditor uh, that would worry me if, if uh, I were KPMG. First is they did sign off on the reclassification of substantially all those investment securities as hold to maturity. And some of these maturities are way out. Well, that's pretty hard to demonstrate. You have to be able to demonstrate you have the ability to hold them to maturity and uh, get the full principle and that you're not planning on selling them for other reasons. I'm not sure even at the end of 2021 or in the spring of 2022 and they're performing their audit. Uh, maybe I'm just too tough. I, I might have been very hard to have been convinced that that was a proper classification. Thus, in 2022, their financial statements were able, let's say, to shield, I won't say hide, they did have to do a disclosure, $15 billion in losses are setting in that portfolio at the end of the year. <clears throat> Secondly, it's a requirement on the issuer or the, the reporting entity to assess your ability to continue as a going concern for a period not less than a year. So the rule of thumb, everybody is looking a year out from the date of the auditor's report or the, uh, when the financial statements are available to be released. I would love to have seen how Silicon Valley Bank what kind of documentation, what they what they presented to show that, yeah, we can meet our obligations as they come due, including withdrawals. Not sure how they did that, but the auditor's responsibility is to assess management's plan to stay alive and how they can continue as a going concern. <clears throat> so you got two big red what do you call flares that are going up in my mind when I looked at the filing and uh, given the news uh, that, that would give me real uh, pause and concern if I were the auditor. And of course, the auditor is not responsible for everything that's in the 10K. Their opinion goes to the financial statements. Uh, however, they do have a responsibility to read and see if there's any inconsistencies between what's disclosed that management's required to disclose in the 10K vis-a-vis uh, -vis the financial statements. And I can tell you, if you picked up and read what management had in the 10K, nothing there would alarm you. And I think there were a number of alarm bells that should have been going off. Um, I think if uh, you're, you're a small business person and you're looking to select a bank, I think, number one, you look at, okay, I don't want to lose my cash. I want my deposits to be safe. And if you're not expecting to ever have more than 250000 in the bank in your operating cash in your payroll accounts or whatever, then uh, that makes it a lot easier. You, you work on what's a bank that will help me with you know, my business and I can have a good relationship with. Now, if, if you're of a size that you have large, have to have large amounts of cash, maybe your operations, a retailer, um, I don't know, you, you 
pick at something that's just requires a lot of cash, then it's incumbent upon you to get all the information you can on your bank filings and maybe ask the questions or maybe uh, uh, if you got a lot of cash at risk that would be uninsured, probably behooves you to go ahead and consult with a, you know, a CPA, a bank or somebody that can pick up those filings and say, you know, this looks like a problem. This is something you might need to be concerned about and watch. Uh, otherwise, I mean, it's, it's just hard for Joe Blow businessman to know just how safe his bank is. All right. Well, let's just hope that uh, we're, we're at the end of the bank failures. I don't think we're, you know, you and I work with a lot of these banks and, and look at, at their information, and I just don't see a trend, or at least in our community. I mean, the banks, for the most part, look pretty healthy to they me. They do. I think there, I think there will be uh, continue to be a tightening of lending standards, I think, in the short yes. term, particularly in this environment. So, I would say for small businesses, uh, just be aware of that. Um, and that is both mm -hmm. in terms of the ability to obtain loan and the rates. Uh, rates, you know, probably elevated for what certainly what they were six months ago or a year ago. Um, and the mm -hmm. standard, standards were, were in a tight, tightened environment. So uh, just be aware of that. You know, you touched on something that might be important uh, for us to communicate to the business community. Uh, if you're needing to expand, you're really looking and you need to borrow money for business purposes, uh, something you may not know, it's hard to know, is whether or not you go to bank A and ask for a loan and whether they even have the ability, in other words, the capacity, based upon the parameters in their regulatory filings. You know, people like Mike or I can tell out whether they're loaned out, if you will, uh, and and it, it helps to know uh, if you're in whatever business or industry you're in that your your first bite at the apple is with a bank that has both the capability, potential, and the desire to make you a loan. Because otherwise, once you get turned down once or twice, it, it spreads. I mean, it makes it very difficult. Uh, so uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of time, but uh, you might be well served to consult with someone before you start going uh, around town asking uh, different banks for for your money yep all right okay well mike that's about all i have you got anything else all right we hope you enjoyed our discussion on the svb bank failure and gained some valuable insights from our guests michael levesque and rick swafford to contact our guests or to learn more about Rotor for Moss, visit our website at info.rotorformoss.com forward slash roundtable. Thanks for tuning in.